You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Bracken, I feel like I need to step up my office game all of a sudden. Uh, you got a sweet new backdrop today. You know, they said the day would never come, and they were close to being right, but it finally has arrived. So what I am looking at, people, so for the last six months that Bracken and I, not six, whatever it is, <laughs> many, many, many months, I look at behind Bracken, he's in this tiny room, and it's white paint with blue painter's tape across it in many hash marks. His intent was to put shoes up there and have that the background to his podcasting, you know, room. Well, I looked at this stupid wall behind Bracken for the last half a year. And today he has this like brilliant barn door wood paneling with all of the shoes he's ever worn perfectly placed. And I got to say, Bracken, I haven't had this sort of twinge of jealousy in quite some time. Well, it warms my heart to hear, Kirk. It was uh-huh. a long time coming. Lisa is relieved that it finally looks like this. And it turned out. You know what? I got to take a photo of this right now so that the people can see. I'm taking a photo right now. There it is. People are going to have a good idea of this sweet setup. All right. So what, what, went, into, what went into this design here, Bracken? Well, Kirk, we got to go back. So this is an old, old home, 1917. And it was this room if you want to call it that, basically just houses um, nothing. It's, I think, seven and a half feet by five feet. You're in a closet. Yeah, but it's not. There's, there's not. It's not even a closet. It's just a pass-through to get from the hallway to the second floor deck. Hmm. But because it was seven, 1917 when it was built, they had like 20 kids in the family, and they housed kids in here in like a tiny little twin mattress. So it was a bedroom, but it's useless for us. So we... It had a closet backside of a wall that there's a door that went straight through into the bathroom on the other side. So when we were in here recording, you could hear people showering or brushing their teeth or turning the sink on or anything else you happen to do in a bathroom. So we removed that door, put in a wall, and then slapped up some pallet boarding and mounted some shoes. And now it's a studio. You drove by a stack of pallets on the side of the road and grabbed them this weekend? Yeah, yeah. My dad and I were trying to figure out how to finish this off the right way because the sun comes in here and it highlights every imperfection in the wall and it kind of washes out color a little bit. Hmm. So we had this like light, this like light gray whitish paint here, and the shoes kind of blended into it when I held things up as a demo. And we just said, let's let's, let's try a pallet wall. So we went and collected a bunch of pallets from alleys and businesses and cut them apart, cut them to size, and we put them up this weekend. Dude, it looks amazing. Very, very envious. You did good. Took you long enough, but I think oh. the wait was worth it. Do you know who we have to thank for this happening? Yancey Culp? Matt B. Davis. Matt B. Davis? Yeah. Not my wife, who asked me to finish it for half a year. Not you, who got sick of staring at it for half a year. Matt B. Davis, because he asked me to 
um, live commentate with him the Savage Rage this coming weekend. And I realized if there's going to be people watching me, I can't be in this dingy half finished room anymore. So we had to finish it up. So thank you, Matt. Wow. I feel like I got to step up my game over here. Eventually, we, we've got to get that bedroom behind you turned into a studio. We sure do. I'm going to be moving soon, though. I'm starting to look at new houses, so uh, it'll be a new setup. I think I'm going to wait until I move to get the suite set up. So it's this for now, Bracken. I'm okay with it. I like I like the way that you have to dodge the sun the entire time we record podcasts. Yeah, I got a window. We recorded typically mid-morning. I got a window where the sun hits me square in the face. So like right now, it's like highlighting my gingy beard and like kind of burning my retinas. Half of his face is in the shadow. And the other half, you can't even see it because it's so lit up by sun. <laughs> I want to ask you one more question. Um, yeah. And that is that you mentioned in our last episode that you were going to go for your first run walk uh, because I think you jogged from like the car to the door and realized you ran or something and said, maybe I'll try. How'd it go? It went well. I stopped before my body was ready to stop. I did 40 minutes the first day and 50 minutes the next day. And I did 30 second pickups walk pick up to a jog and then back down did eight of those day one and then i did 10 60 second pickups during the second one so just walk jog classic walk jog recovery process but that's so good for people to hear because you know you could have continued to run most likely right without mm -hmm. maybe causing damage but you put the governor on practice self-restraint and did this like cerebrally and that's important like people including myself sometimes jump in too quick after an injury and here you are just walk running 30 seconds at a time and i think that's good for people to hear it is because could you get away with more probably but what's the reward to that so you get fit four days earlier or a week earlier uh -huh. but you know as well as i do that calves are fine until they're not and if it just pops up suddenly oh i'm back it was not worth that first run well, here's what I think. If you can run 60 seconds of crack with like a 60 second walk in between or whatever it was. Three minute walk in between, yeah. Okay. Oh, even more cautious then. But like, even if you can hold up to a minute of running, granted, I'm assuming it wasn't like race pace. Uh, it's super encouraging, man. I think that's uh, that's a good Eight sign. Eight minute pace. You're two, you're two weeks removed from messing it up. No, well, way more than that. Three. Three weeks removed. Yeah, just over. So good. Good job. I'm trying to learn from you. Keep that lower <laughs> leg healthy. I'm trying to. You are in race week. Yeah, yeah, race and I'm week. not. So I've got yeah. the I've got the jealousy bug biting me about your racing. You you can you can lust after my wall. I'm gonna lust after your ability to go race right now. Yeah, I mean, but here's you know, and this is one of our. I think we should actually tie. We should intro our topic right now, and then tie in what I may. I think I'm gonna say. Okay. In, into we'll make it works. So um, we can just cover this once instead of twice. So what's our topic today, Bracken? Uh, mistakes we see trending in 2021. We had a episode at the end of the year. We just, it was part of our year in review. We said things we learned in 2020 and people responded well to it, but it kind of made us realize why should we wait until the end of the year to remind people about what they had done wrong the whole time and what we had done wrong the whole time. We might as well nip it in the bud and address things in the moment so people don't get behind the eight ball. So we're going to do that. We've started to see some things pop up with our athletes and other people we've seen online. And this isn't us being like, oh, I saw this person doing this. This is someone announcing, this is what happened to me. This is what I'm doing. How do I fix it? So we're just going to address it right now because it's timely. Yeah. And I think we're learning the most from, honestly, our, our athletes that we're working mm -hmm. with in personal coaching, hearing or seeing like the little mistakes or like life gets in the way and they make some 
maybe split second decisions on how to approach a workout or something they're doing. And then we're like, you know, if you're making that mistake, my guess is that a lot of other people are making that mistake too. Bracken is uh, <laughs> organizing his shoes. It wasn't perfectly sitting on the wall there. You see how these heels are all backed up to that line? Oh, yes, I do. You were trying. Let's see, if you're going to do something, do it right. Oh, I see that. Good job. Okay. Um, is, there a little, is there a little OCD in there? I'm, I'm sure there's a little bit. We all have a little bit of everything. Oh, I have no problem admitting I got OCD tendencies for yeah. sure. But but seeing you just perfectly tweak that shoe just now, it just hit me just right. Listen, we're about addressing things in the moment. There, we'll <laughs> address that's it. out of line. We're going to address it. Yeah. So we assume like if we're seeing some of these mistakes that just pop up, not even, I don't know if mistakes is even the right word, but better ways to do things, then if we're seeing it amongst a small sample group, then we assume some of you are maybe making the same mistakes or could do better. So that's why we want to talk about it today. And I just wanted to intro that Bracken before I talked about like my race lead in and everything I have, you know, going on with myself, because it's one of the mistakes I'm seeing other people make as well. Yeah. So, so I guess I'll just kick this thing off then. And that is, yeah, I do have a race this weekend in Vegas. And on the last episode we did, um, I told you I was only going to run three days last week because I knew I had to run more this next week with the race week. Um, and I only ran two days last week, Bracken. Two days as an endurance athlete. What do you think about that? Well, if I didn't know you, I'd be worried. Mm -hmm. I do know you, so I am slightly worried because I know the reason you're not running as much. But I'm encouraged because I know you <laughs> and you're not running much. Yeah. If I didn't know you, I would say, yikes, this person's only running twice, they're not ready to race. I do know you, and so I say, well, he's dealing with something in his legs, and he's being smart about it, and that warms my heart again. You've warmed my heart twice now in this episode, Kirk. Three times, maybe will be the charm. I'll find one more way to do it, Bracken. Um, so what this will lead me into one of the things that I've been seeing lately, but um, you bring up the, uh, and I've used this analogy so dang much with athletes recently, and it's yours. Pay now or pay later, right? Mm -hmm. And when you pay later, the payment is much more severe and it is much more steep and it is much more lengthy and it's much more costly and it's much more catastrophic. When you pay now, is it ideal? No, it's annoying, but you don't accrue interest, right? And so I'm choosing to pay now. And so two days a week of running, you, you said if you, if you have to ask, you can't afford it was another thing you had said about somebody wondering if they should cross train or run that day. And I woke up Saturday morning saying, I can't afford it. And so I went and hit the skis instead of the run. And, um, and so what that brings me into say is I've had a number of athletes, like everybody's typically ramping up their training right now. And I'm going to say I have a half a dozen in the rotation or more that are dealing with some sort of niggle or nagle and hemming and hoeing. And I've had one or two in particular who chose to ignore the pay now or pay later. And now we're a week or two off of running and it's very frustrating as them, of course, and as their coach. And so you asked me about Vegas and I have a race week coming up and I would like to tow the start line. And this race doesn't mean shit. It's one race. And so pay now and your fitness won't suffer. I'll prove it to you this weekend when I go out and race. You can make it work without running every day. So I just wanted to talk about that point because uh, what do you what do you say? Bracken, in your last five years, have you been completely injury free? Yes, but not Why? in the last three. Okay. You've always been monitoring something. Yes. And what happens when you don't monitor something closely enough over time or you let it slip away? What happens? It moves from that to be done pile on your desk and suddenly it 
fills up your computer screen. Like that's all you can see. It takes up your entire life. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so I think talking things through on this podcast for me has been very eye-opening as a constant reminder just in our chatting that like, what's the rush? And I have a few athletes who are feeling like they're in a rush. They have races coming up in the next month or two. They feel like they need to push the dial when, oh, their knee's really bugging them. I'm having some people with some hip stuff lately. Um, and just what we'll make it work, right? You can make it work by cross-training through, and you're not going to lose hardly anything, if anything, once it resumes. So that's the first mistake I've seen a few people make, and I don't want you to end up in their boat, people. I'm, maybe, I'm only speaking to a very select group of you right now, but if you have to ask, you can't afford it, as Bracken says. And if there's any doubt, there's your answer. And your answer is to cross-train or stay off of it. And so that's the advice that I heeded this last week. Is, is running twice a week ideal? Not even close. But is peace of mind more important? 100% yes. You're right. And I yep. think this is one of two most dangerous points of the entire year for people. It's now and right before championship season are the two most dangerous points where people are willing to throw caution to the wind and rush back from an injury. Championship season is a no-brainer. You know, people have something going on. It's who cares? I just need to get through this. Then I get to the offseason. Yep. But now is the other one where it's the season starting to ramp up. My races are starting to get here. I just need to get back no matter what. But for what? No exactly. one's A races this weekend. I shouldn't say no one. I'm sure there's someone out there that this is their only race this weekend or next weekend or the week after. But most people want to be fit and rocking late summer, early fall. But the decision you make today directly determines whether you are going to be ready to rock in late summer and early fall. So what is the rush? The rush right now is to injury. Mm -hmm. You're rushing towards disaster if you rush back right now. And we're all facing that. I'm tempted to jump into the next race because I don't have any pain. But what would that do for me? Mm -hmm. There's that, that worry that some people have that if I don't show up, I'm forgotten. Or if I do show up and I don't do well because I feel out of shape, that I'm just going to be ridiculed or people are going to forget how good I am. But neither of those things are true. Mm -hmm. And who didn't show up to Jacksonville? Ryan and Lindsay. Does anyone care? I mean, no. No. Who didn't do well in Jacksonville? A lot of people. Does it suddenly negate their worth in this community? No. I look at Alex Walker this past weekend. I consider her one of the five best female obstacle racers mm -hmm. in North America. And I don't really think that's much of a debate at this point. And she just lost the Super on Saturday in her hometown Texas race in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. On paper, we would have said she'd win by a couple minutes. And she had a rough day. She missed an obstacle and she lost. And do you know what that did to her ranking in the community's mind? Nothing. Nothing. Everyone makes excuses for her because they know how good she is. Yep. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. If you, if you skip your last couple big workouts or you take some time off of running and you don't have your best possible performance, you're the only one that really cares. Mm -hmm. Even the people who care about you are more upset for you than they are at you. And nobody sits at home after, let's say that is your concern. So, so to just dial this in just a hair more before we move on to many other things we're going to talk about today is that like, it's the people who have races coming up in the next two, four, six weeks. Those are the ones that are, are making the wrong decision. It's the ones who feel the pressure of racing. And I almost came to that last week myself, right? You know, my last quality workout Bracken was last Tuesday. Okay, I haven't done a quality session on my feet in a week. It's going to be eight days between. 
I've done quality sessions cross training, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm going to be just fine. But it's those people that think like, I'm going to lose fitness. I'm going to lose run economy. I have a, I have a marathon in two weeks and suddenly this pops up. And if I don't run today and stay on my typical schedule, it's a mind game as much as it is physical. I am telling you like, get out of your own way there. And the pressure of time means nothing. Do you know that two years ago in Jacksonville, I don't know, you probably do remember this. Um, we were just having our own chats at this point. I had a foot issue pop up because I ran in some new like um, uh, yak tracks, stupid, Okay. two weeks before. And it was on a Tuesday. And I did not run Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I had a race the following week, which was Jacksonville, where I went and took fourth place. And I took five straight days off of running the week prior because I wanted to be smart. And what happened? I still showed up. I still work my systems. I had no problem. So any of you, I just, it's like, it's near and dear to my heart because I do have this, I have to do this all the time right now. And so I think it's, it's those people who have something close on the horizon who end up just digging themselves into a hole further. And if you're one of those people who are on the fence with something going on with your body, just hop off the fence, pick a side and the side is caution. So yeah, I want to get that message across. Got to. And I got a message this past weekend, an athlete said, you know what? I just, it's too close to the race. I can't wait any longer. And it's like, no, that's, that's exactly it. You can't let the race dictate what your protocol is. If the race was not there, would you work out today? Well, no, that would be dumb. Well, then it's dumb to work out. <laughs> yes. Period. It's, there's no such thing as I can't wait any longer unless it's like the Olympics or the world championship and your family's financial future rests on this one race, which is none of us. Or I think you could even justify it by like, this is the last race of my season. This is my Tahoe yep. or my world champs. And I know I have the luxury of a month or two if I need it afterwards. And this race is so important. This is a calculated decision to do so. Yes. Uh, but that's the only exception. And and as to speak to something you said, like nobody's going to go home after, let's just say for some reason, you being smart, you do lose a little fitness by cross training, you show up and underperform. Is your ego going to be hurt? Maybe a little bit, but you'll understand why. Nobody's going to go home that night and be like, damn, Kirk's really falling off. He sucked. And they're going to dwell on that and think about that and like actually take note. Everybody's so consumed with them damn selves that they do not care what you do ultimately. Sure, they'll pretend or they'll show in the moment and it's an, it's an instant sort of reaction. And then they don't go home and dwell on it. And you just get back to work, do your thing. So like, don't worry about those. People. Even the pros of endurance sports, the very top have people that troll them for performances. But outside of like the top 0.1% of the pro sports, most of the people to get negative reactions online are for something they've said or done. It's not for their performances because people are just fans of those people and they don't care. So even if like the 10th ring person in the world doesn't catch flack for having an off day, what's going to happen to you know, the average Jane or Joe out there? It's just, you're the only one that's going to care. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm satisfied with how we discussed that. Yeah. Want to bring us into our next thing we've been seeing? Yes. Yeah, so I have had four instances of this so far in 2021. And this is people who are saying, all right, I've committed to a certain style of training, and that is not going hard every day. I'm going to treat my easy days easy, my hard days hard. And I say, fantastic, let's do this. And then there's a conversation that, hey, so I decided that this month in this training block, I'm not going to run slower than eight minute pace on my easy days or 640 pace on my easy days because last block I did seven minutes or last block I did 820. So this block, I'm just going to average eight minutes for my easy days because I'm, I think I'm 20 seconds faster on my 5k. So I'm going to be 20 seconds faster on all my easy runs. And that's what I'm going to average for my easy work this 
this block of training. So, so they're dictating their recovery efforts off of pacing. Off of pacing. And I'm going to average. I, on Monday, I have an easy run after my big long run Saturday or Sunday. And I'm going to average eight minute pace on this easy run because last block I averaged 820. That's a huge red flag to me. Yes. Continue. <laughs> I agree. Well, first of all, it's it's putting the, the cart before the horse, so to speak. It's We're focusing on the wrong part. Your easy pace is dictated by your recovery and how you feel. Your recovery and how you feel does not get towed along by your pace. If you go in and say, I'm going to run this pace, then you're throwing your body's symptoms and, and, and biomarkers out the window entirely. And now you just hope that that pace actually correlates to the effort level that is necessary for hitting your goal for that day, which is either to recover or to not take any damage. So what would be the purpose in the athlete's mind to run a certain pace on recovery days to prove to themselves that their fitness is better to force themselves into what they think is like a better fitness by proving they can still recover at eight minute pace versus 820? Like what's the rationale do you think in their mind? Well, it's a logical rationale. It's that if my interval pace is progressive in nature and we get faster or we lengthen duration every block of training to reflect our improved fitness and for progressive overload and all that good stuff, then my easy and recovery work should reflect the same. I'm not going to improve if I'm always running 820 pace on my easy days because my hard days went from six to 540. I now need to bring my easy days along for the ride or I'm leaving, I'm just leaving something on the table and I'm actually being lazy. That's a logical stance to take from just like a human perspective. But they could not be more wrong. Nope, because if you talk to any pro coach or pro runner, they never ever describe their fitness in terms of their aerobic pacing on easy runs or recovery runs mm -hmm. ever. It's you say, how did this training block go? You always hear, well, I have this benchmark workout and I got 2% faster. You never hear, you know what? I took 15 seconds per mile off my recovery days. <laughs> but you, I will say, and before you continue, is that that could be a good indicator. Let's say you go out and you go for a run and you're like, wow, oh, I'm running 20 seconds per mile faster and my heart rate is still in my recovery zone. That is an indicator of aerobic fitness, but um, it's still irrelevant in my mind. I'll explain why in a second, but you can continue. Yeah, it is an indicator, but in my mind, you can improve one or the other in training, or you can prove one or the other. You keep all your stimulus the same, and now you increase your interval and threshold pace by 10 seconds per mile. Or you keep running the same workouts and you increase your aerobic paces 10 seconds mm -hmm. per mile. But you don't get to increase them both at the same time very often unless you're really new to the sport because you're now burning the candle at both ends and you start to you start to compromise the recovery from both sides. Yeah. I, what I've noticed is that like no matter how fit or unfit I am, um, and, I, and I'm coming from a point where like I've been generally fit in some sense for years. Um, I don't think my recovery efforts have changed at all in the last five years, but my performances sure have when it matters. I think I'm actually running slower now on recovery efforts with intention, but my top end times are improving. I remember back when I again recommitted to training in 2016, you know, my recovery runs were, let's just say, pace, 645, seven-minute pace every day. Um, but I was 58th at Tahoe that year. Now I go out and run 710 to 730 pace 
and my performance when it matters is significantly better and my recovery runs they they didn't follow suit in fact they did the opposite so do you need to ride that line on your recovery day with your heart rate anyways if you're capable or do you just take that extra recovery by still running i don't know slower like i certainly not seen a drop in higher level performance by slowing my recovery days down. It's been the opposite. So uh, I, I find that thought process understandable, but also very, very, very flawed, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, and it makes sense because most people come to, re, I, I say real training because people start exercising and then they transform into training. Yep. And when they start their first real training plan, their background is high end aerobic running usually most people just run high end aerobically most days mm -hmm. of the week and so they are intimately acquainted with what pace they're running because that's the only metric they have they have time yeah, they right. have distance and they have pace and there's no purpose to the run other than i got to try to run that pace yeah they're also intimately equated with like no man's land yes. and not creating peaks and valleys in fitness which is all they know right but so when they move to workouts the one thing they've always known is now relegated to the other days of the week. But when they still go out for those other runs, that pace is still ingrained in their mind. Whereas it doesn't matter to someone whose only focus of their week is hitting a certain volume and a certain intensity. And I always say this, but I just always assume there's one new listener each podcast that hasn't heard us say it before. So I'm going to be repetitive. Eliud Kipchoge ran 4.33 per mile for 26.2 miles. And he typically, continuously runs recovery runs between 7.30 and 8.30 per mile for at least the beginning of his recovery runs. Mm -hmm. So if he can afford to start out three minutes per mile slower than his marathon race pace, you and I and the average Joe and Jane can run one to two minutes per mile slower than our 5K race pace. Yes. If he exactly. can get away with it, we can. And, the, and these, the training camps that he's in and the people that surround him in that world are the best of the best talent wise. And they're also the people that pretty regularly have been under suspicion for or have tested positive for all the performance enhancing drugs. So these are the mm -hmm. people that have every possible reason talent wise. I'm not saying him for drug use, but that that sect of the running population, the top percent of world athletics constantly test positive for drugs. So they have talent and pharmaceutical reasons why they can work harder than everyone else. And they still only pour it into their quality days. And if that doesn't tell you what you need to know, then we're probably not going to convince you. And when you look back at your log, you know, use your multicolored pen. Um, and I write my quality days in blue. I believe you write, write yours in red. Oh, yeah. Uh, see, I'm colorblind, so the red doesn't stand out to me. The red looks like a brownish, so the blue gets me. But anyways, when you look back at, there it is, Bracken's showing me his log. Beautiful. What, what log is that, by the way? This is 2020's log. Oh, yeah. just a notebook? Yeah. Here is 2021. You can see I shifted from a slate gray to more of a, a cerulean blue. You did. Good choice. Subtle change over the years. Yeah, I see that. But when I look back at my log, all I'm looking at are my blue days. Like I have two blue days a week, which is my quality day. And the recovery stuff is such a by the way anyways. Those metrics really shouldn't matter to you. I know it's hard sometimes because you want them to, but they, they don't. They just, they just don't. You know, I have, I can't figure it out, but I have two Africans that live and train somewhere in my neighborhood. Um, they're not on Strava. I've tried to creep them. They, I can't figure out who they are. Uh, they're clearly high level uh, class 
endurance athletes. It's a man and a woman. They run in like old school, like wind pants at times. And, and they probably are running, I'm going to say nine minute pace. Maybe I've passed them on my recovery runs while they're doing recovery runs, kind of feeling silly. Um, and then, you know, a week later, I'll see this gentleman out there running like 445 pace, looking the part, doing his deal way more effortlessly than I ever could. And it's the same guy who, I mean, I might be generous at nine minute pace. And this guy will run circles around me. And I don't think he speaks much English. I've tried to do a hello. I don't really get what's going on. But point being, all I know is like, I see these two and I'm like, if they're doing it, then like everybody should be, should be doing yeah. it. Heck, I'm passing them on my recovery days and his top end potential is way better than mine. So Final piece of this, and we've really milked this to death, but this thing needs to be pounded into everyone's head. Uh, my anecdotal report here is my senior year, my fifth year of college, I was student teaching and I couldn't, and I was taking 21 um, credits. So I didn't have time to make it to track practice or cross country. And so my entire fifth year, I did every workout alone, all of them. But all my in-between easy and long runs, I ran with Lisa. Oh. And that's where all my PRs came from that year. And then post-collegiately, we ran together every single day until we moved to Colorado. And so I made my first world championship podium running four of my seven runs per week with my wife, including my long run. I didn't even do long workouts at the time for a long run. I do long hill workouts, but all my warm-ups, all my cool downs, all my easy runs, all my recovery runs, and all my flat long runs were with Lisa. I love that. If you make your hard days hard enough, your easy days really are just time on feet. I went back again in my log. And if you don't keep a log right now, I'm going to smack you people. Keep your damn log. A handwritten log. One that you actually get intimate with. That's important. And I was filtering through them this weekend after my workout, trying to figure out how to make my lead into this race still work without running much. And I started to correlate when I popped good run performances. And two of my best last year, I ran with Jess, one, on a Friday. And we ran like 8.45 pace. And it was a slog for me at the time. And then I popped probably my best workout in eight weeks the next day. And the best one before that was with my buddy mustache, Mike Tonsger, who weighs about 240. And he's a football player, was a football player. And we might have plotted at 1030 and it was painful. I had to walk at times just so he could keep up. I think I popped my best workout in the last freaking three years the day after that. And so I was just going, it was another huh moment. Like, is there, is that a coincidence or is it not? And, and I don't think it is. So. Another just another example of your Lisa running to my easy running before quality work. So yeah, there it is. Next topic. Well, this is a touchy topic, but uh, calorie restriction. Yeah. A lot of people have become more open with me as a coach about their eating habits since we've started addressing this on, on the show. Mine too. And I like that. The dialogue is open and we can work with that. But what it has illuminated is that restricting calories is a very non-one-to-one -one correlation between calories restricted and improvements mm -hmm. which yeah that's not really like groundbreaking news but all of my athletes who are restricting calories except for one one just seems to be a crazy responder to calorie restriction all the others in a performance sense yeah it doesn't affect it he's not he's not crabby he's not moody he just does well with restricted calories. He's hitting his workouts. Hitting his workouts, improving, getting better. It makes me think that his calorie expenditure is not the number he's he's uh, estimating is not as accurate throughout the years as he thought it was. Mm -hmm. But other than that one athlete, 
everyone is like they can restrict 100 to 300 calories per week because they're you know for health reasons and everything they're trying to drop a little bit of weight and per they day, do all right. 100 to 300 per day. Not per day, day. yes. Yeah, 100 yeah. to 300 per day. That'd be a very slow, yeah, it'd be the slow game, yeah, long game. And they, they do all right. But, and I've always thought you can restrict up to 500 per day and be fine, but almost to a man and a woman, anyone who's crossing over 300 per day that I'm working with is just not improving. And then they start regressing and they're so irritable and everything affects them and recovery takes so long. It's that... It's, it's hitting me that maybe it, we have to be even more careful with our calorie restriction than we thought in the past. Because our sport is more demanding than other endurance sports in terms of all the different facets that we have to work. And I think we lift harder than a lot of endurance sports do. And we also run hard and hit some volume, which all sports do. But the combination seems to be a little bit more stressful cellularly or nervous system wise. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but we need a little bit more calorie intake than a sterile endurance sport, like just cycling or just swimming or something like that. That's what I'm finding. And I mean, everybody you're dealing with uh, most likely also has a life outside of training, right? Exactly. We're, we're comparing to maybe if I didn't have a life outside of training and I could recover properly every day and get enough sleep and lay around as much as I need to, it's a different story, but I, I don't, none of my athletes have that luxury. You don't, I don't. So that also factors into what, so what do you, it's a tough one. You know, I got a half a dozen going through this right now. I'm sure you do too. It seems to be the time of year where they realize racing is happening. Yeah. They're not maybe necessarily where they want to be, or they know they could, they believe they could be better if asterisks. Yes. They lost five pounds. And so oh, it, the, the, the little the little hacks that I've seen work, um, and again, the, the jury is out on this, is, you know, if you want to go do like what Dr. Uh, Anna said was like time-restricted feeding, if you want to do some fasted recovery work, that's a good place to start without any shift in, without any shift in calories, just go do your morning run without calories and then have your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner. Just that little bit of window I've seen can kind of get people over the edge just a little slowly recovery days. Now I'm not talking quality days. Mm -hmm. Um, or it's not even counting calories. It's like, I know that for example, I probably have a hundred to 150 calories of dark chocolate every night after dinner. It's just what I do. Jess has her gummy bears. I have my dark chocolate. That's that's the way we roll, right? It's like two six-year-olds hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what I thought I noticed is men have more of a problem with chocolate, and women have more of a problem with like the sugar gummies in general. But we're a case of that. For Jess's birthday, everybody knows she's a gummy fanatic, and last year she got. Uh, it was like 25 pounds of gummy bears between everybody knowing that that's what she wants and then choosing to get her that as part of a gift. So we go through a lot of gummies in this house. But anyways, it should be as simple as me going, do I need that dark chocolate? Like I don't, it's just like, and then when I don't have it, I'm fine. I chose not to have it last night. Um, something simple like that. Or I know I reach, like, I don't need X, like my sugary mocha, or I don't need, like just pick a something and then just improve on that. And like that little bit, isn't like a mental like tax. You're not overthinking or counting. You're just eliminating something you know on the fringe that you don't need. And that's what I find works the best without like bleeding into like sucking more life out of you on like the mental side of trying to diet. So yeah. that's what I go with. I've had two or three athletes say, how do you do your big Saturday workouts and not blow the rest of your weekend with your family? 
Like I get done with these and all I want to do is be in bed for two days. They're long, they're grueling, I'm trashed afterwards, I'm crabby. And it happens to be people who are restricting their diet a little bit more stringently than I would recommend. And I think the answer is that your fueling dictates how pleasant you're going to be around your family the rest of your weekend. That if at 750 calories of deficit per day or 500, you're a grouch and your wife doesn't like you after big workouts and your kids can't get you to play with them, then cut that deficit in half and see if you're a better person. Because again, we are all balancing life with hobby and, and the life side has to win <laughs> in the long run. Otherwise, you're not going to get any joy from your hobby. The life side is what you're doing forever. No matter what happens with this sport, the life side will continue to go on. So that still is priority number one. And so if you're struggling with energy or you're struggling with big workouts taking too much out of you, it might just be a case of you need a few more calories in your week to be a functioning individual. Yeah. I did notice this weekend. So I went out and did a, um, so typically I do about 35 minutes of hard work a week out from a race. Whatever that workout is, I pick my Saturday workout and that's my last big one. Um, so I did five by seven minutes on three minutes off on the cross country skis, right? I didn't just go feel bad for myself because I couldn't run. I did a purposeful workout, seven minutes hard, three minutes easy times five, which got me 35 minutes of quality work. Um, but what I didn't realize is how much I sweat during all of that. And I did not replace liquids enough. I was out in the snow thinking I wasn't, um, and I couldn't figure out I was in a funk until like two or three o'clock in the day. And I was like, I'm not doing well. And then I suddenly realized like when I peed, it looked like maple syrup and I hadn't replenished enough. And I find a lot of it can be dictated to that too. Just hydration front, something to think on those big days. I noticed as soon as I put in like 32 ounces of water, I was like, Oh, I have life again. That was crazy. So I don't know, just a side note to that one. So to wrap it all up, the trend we're noticing right now is people are not slow playing their weight loss. They say, my goal is to do it by this date. You might need to add 50% or 100%, like maybe time and a half or double your goal date because it's not about getting there and you won. It's about being a sustainable human being before and afterwards. And you're better off going into your next event, still not quite where you want to be physically, but also very well fueled and saturated and recovered that way. So like benefit doesn't always outweigh the cost. And I think you're just outlining that. Exactly. Yeah. Should I go to my next one? Yeah, please do. All right. Um, I had two people um, either before uh, Jacksonville or San Antonio, which was this last weekend, talk about how they were going to go out and really hit this last workout hard on Tuesday or Wednesday to get ready for San Antonio. I'm not in and smirking here, Kirk, because <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. Not smirking at them, smirking at the mistakes I've made. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. That's why we can have a podcast and talk about these things because we've screwed up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so we've got our PhD in screw ups. Yeah. Like Nancy Culp says, failing forward. I love that saying. I failed forward my entire life, much as I'm sure you have. Um, yeah. But yeah, so the uh, I'm going to hit this last one hard, really get it going on for the race this weekend. Um, no, no. And it came from people who maybe felt like they didn't have the best last Saturday workout before the race. So a week out, they were like, oh, I was tired or the kids or I was a little sick and I didn't hit it. But I really want to make sure I nail this one. Um, you know, we use the phrase the hay is in the barn. Anything you do today is only taking away from the race this weekend. And to most of an extent, that is correct. So 
um, making up, let's say, let's call it even making up the week of a race for maybe a week prior that wasn't so great um, is only going to detriment, not help your race. So I've seen that a couple of times. I've seen a couple athletes and I saw their data and they really overextended themselves in my opinion. And then they wonder why either their legs were flat or halfway through, they just didn't have it on race day. So I think we should talk about that just a little more. And, and I think it's a mental, totally a mental issue. And I've had it in the past, which is suddenly you see the race is right here and I know how intense it's going to be. And I have to prove to myself that I can go to that place. Yes, but I get it. If you listen to Ryan Atkins, this man races as much as any human we know. And he's he's known as being as tough as anyone. But both he and John Elbin, who both race a lot, have talked that you can only go to that place so many times per season before it erodes you internally, both physically and mentally. That you go to push a button and the button just can't be pushed like it used to, or you kind of don't look forward to pushing it anymore. Like there's that mm -hmm. fine line of you've got to push it enough to know how the, function fu the button functions and to know that I can handle pushing that button. But you can't over push it because you need that button to be there when you need it. And the time to push it is not in the last 12 days before a race. Yep. You like to use this uh, use your matches. Um, yes. Yeah, Jesus, use your matches. And God, all of my athletes are using, where should I burn my match? And I burn match one here. I mean, I'm hearing it from everybody. So Bracken, you started something. Yeah. Um, although, side note, I had one of my athletes uh, who completed his first 100 miler landed on the podium. Sam, good job, Sam. He said, I would rather think about it as shooting an arrow out of a bow. And I said, okay, tell me more. And he said, well, a well-placed shot you can go back and grab that arrow and put it back in your quiver. But a poorly placed shot or a poorly placed, you may never find that arrow and be able to use it again. And he's like, I like to say that because if maybe a match is burned at the right time in the right moment, you may be able to use that match again if it hasn't. So he's like, I picture arrows in a quiver. What do you think of that? I think that applies. Well, first of all, you had me at archery. All right? okay. I'll, all right. I'll, I'll be on board with anything archery related. But... I think it applies to what he's what his world is right now, which is the ultra world. Mm -hmm. Where in the ultra world you can fall apart and then an hour later you're on top of the world. And so I think that maybe that's the ultra uh, caveat to the matchbook is that these are reusable matches if done intelligently and if you trust your training. Yeah. A well placed shot that hits the target, you can go grab your arrow, remove it from the target and put it right back in the quiver and one that misses the target. Uh, errant shot is is done for and gone. But my point was, is that I also think that I like to look at the entire season as a matchbook, right? And now we talk about those matches as like efforts where you can go into the well, the ones that like change you as an athlete, those races where you found that extra gear that you didn't know you had, the one where you go to the well on your mile repeats and you hit new markers, right? And you're like, I left it all out there. How many matches are in a matchbook? Let's say a dozen maybe, right? I, more than that, but whatever. Like we only, as a year span, as far as our big efforts, I feel like we have a finite number of those where we really go to the well. That's why we talk about A races. Like I, the ones that I can really plan on going for, right? And so I also think you need to look at it as at that. Like how many times can I actually go into the well throughout a given season or year before I stagnate or burn out? And so why would you waste one of those the week before a race? before it really matters. And so that's another way to look at that matchbook, I think. I like that. And I have felt that. I, I felt that. it too. I, I flash back to Colorado one May. 
I got to the point where I thought I am so fit and I am going to be so good in my next race, but I'm not sure where I can even go from here mm -hmm. other than rest and reload and build again, because I've been too intense for too long. So you're right. You can run out of matches. Now, Sam, is that Sam con the man con? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam con the man con. I like that analogy. And it got me thinking while you were talking, Kirk, I don't know if you saw those wheels shifting in my head. Oh yeah. A everyone knows I love boxing and MMA. And there's this strange concept in combat sports that a missed punch taxes you way more than a landed punch. That if you're throwing strikes and you're consistently landing, your opponent is decelerating your punches. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you swing and miss, your hand continues forward and you have to physically stop your momentum and bring it back. And it actually takes more energy to miss than it does to land. Mm -hmm. Also, you have the mental just little dagger of, oh, I failed again. I failed again. You have embarrassment, you have frustration. Whereas every time you land, you get that little piece of, all right, I've got this. I'm starting to roll. Your momentum picks up. You might get a little adrenaline from it. And that's that's kind of how I, I like to think about, but I never made that connection to his with the, you get to shoot again. If you make mm -hmm. a move in a part of the race that doesn't matter, let's say you accelerate from 12th place up to fifth place in a pack, but you're still in the same pack. It's kind of like swinging and missing. You burnt a match with no reward, but if a break gets made and you accelerate and reattach to a group, you get a little bit of confidence from that. And then if you accelerate on a hill and drop a guy, yeah, it, you burned your match, but it, it fueled you forwards. And so swinging and missing hurts your gas tank doubly, whereas swinging and connecting builds up your confidence meter a little bit. A perfect example. I wonder how many analogies we could come up with, by the way, for like choosing when to push and when to conserve. We could come up with um, perfect example of that. Actually, go to the arrow, well-placed arrow marker was Connor Mance last week in the cross country champs. Connor Mance burned one of his first matches or shot one of his first arrows in the first 800 meters of that race and went with Kip 2, which was, they literally ran like 420 pace through the first mile. It was insane. Um, and he burnt a match staying connected. It was a well-placed shot and he chose to take it. Then he realized Kip 2 is out over his head and he chose to fall, he chose to fall back off of Kip 2's pace and let him gap him a little bit. But his first match came back to him or his first arrow was put back in the quiver because he chose not to continue to like embrace what he had chosen to do with burning that first one. And he reused that again once he realized that Kip 2, in fact, did go too hard and he could use that arrow again to catch and then use that to pass Kip 2. And I just think like that would be a really good example of that. It would yeah. be another example to our sport would be like, I know the Z wall is coming up and I am going to go all out two minutes into the Z wall knowing I'm going to have a 15 second mini break. That might be an example of a, a well-burned match or a well-placed arrow. So that was a tangent. How, how did we get on that? I don't know, but I have a follow-up to the tangent. <laughs> okay. Talk about Connor Manson, Kip too. I saw a crazy stat. A guy, uh, a collegiate runner um, who qualified as a team runner at Nationals, not as an individual. He was on a team that was a, I don't know if it was Akron or someone smaller like that, but he claimed he was dead last through the first mile at Nationals and ran 438. I believe it. Oh, I believe that. 438. Now it's slightly downhill first mile, but he ran 438 in last place at this cross country race. You talk about having to choose a match. Do you do you let yourself just get out of contact and hope that your fitness brings you back? Or do you burn a tactical match that first mile just to have a prayer at being in contact? That's crazy. Can you imagine 
there are people that just a lot of good runners that could not be in second to last place one mile into a race. I went to the Notre Dame invite my sophomore year of college. Uh, we were the national champs year before, so we went into like the A race, which means we were the only D3 school in the A race. We were sandwiched between Stanford, uh, Notre Dame, and whoever else. We were ranked, funny thing is one of my teammates, Jason Fast, who's now a coach, we were, Stanford was right next to us. And so, and we were ranked number one in D3 and Stanford was ranked number one in D1. And you know how the guy with the gun goes like, on your mark, he's like in 10, nine, they do this really long dramatic countdown in cross country. Um, And my teammate, Jason Fast goes, number one in D1, number one in D3, something's got to give. And all the Stanford guys were rolling and then we took off. Anyways, in that race, I came through the mile in 501 and I was in dead last with one other guy. Mm-hmm. 501. And in cross country, you have 150, 200, 300 runners. Dead last. There were me and two other guys, and we probably had a five second gap to the actual pack. 501. So I experienced that. And I was kind of burning a match just to do that. <laughs> so it's it was 501 not a, on grass. It's not 501 on the road or on the track. It was not a good day for me, but I've experienced that. All right. Long tangent. Purpose being, what, what did you start talking about? Something about hundred mile races? No, no. This whole thing went back. To, this whole thing went back to not running too hard in your workout the uh, the week of a race, and then I related it to a matchbook throughout your whole season, and then we got us here. So you and I both have our biggest workout three to four weeks out from a race. Mm-hmm. Three is what I prefer. My my big last one, yeah. yeah. We still do real workouts in between there, but we're not crossing over that 95% effort level really throughout the last three weeks of training. Three weeks before is when I combine volume and intensity. That three weeks before is like, I may have a three hour long run and I may make an hour plus of that, like pain cave hell. And then everything is depreciated from there into race day. Yeah. Um, What else do you have? Anything? Those are the single biggest ones that I have noticed this thus far there are little things sprinkled throughout there that i think we'll talk about in future training tuesdays but these are the ones the pressing issues that i thought we should stop anyone's progress on this before they get entrenched in it i do have one more actually no uh it just came to mind um and that is i had a a number of athletes uh disappointed in their obstacle proficiency at some of these first few races whether it's slow or failure or any of that um and then they went out the next day in the open or in something else and went to just get obstacle experience and they nailed everything, of course. And well, why did they, why did they suck, so to speak, on race day? Because um, they went into it at a, at a 180 beats per minute heart rate and they were already buffering lactate and they were in trouble. And, and completing an obstacle in that state is completely different than, let's say, the grip work I assign at times or... Um, some of that. So I think that bit a few people in the butt being like, why I never fail monkey bars and I failed monkey bars. And it has nothing to do with your ability to do monkey bars. We all know you can do monkey bars has to do with the fact that you're not able to do that 20 minutes and do a threshold run. So, or beyond. So I just think that was like one other thing I noticed as far as mistakes made on athletes behalf was they were dissatisfied with obstacle efficiency. And most always, I think it came back to the fact that um, they weren't ready for, to do it with that exertion level. Did you see any of that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just tried to relay the message that it's rust. This is the longest most people have ever gone without a race in their life. 
And then, yeah, take it coming out of the race and realizing I have to hit a few more race specific obstacles or hand switches or pull ups when I am not wanting to be on the bar. Just like what Yancey said, it's not about what you can do when you want to be on the bar. It's what can you do when you don't even want to approach the bar anymore. And too often, and I'm guilty of this with my coaching, Yancey highlighted a couple of my weaknesses in his episode. I don't program enough exercises, enough workouts that get you to the place where you don't want to be on the bar and then you need to get on it. Mm-hmm. It actually is going to thinking about that and how I respond to overhead work and being on the bar. We like to do a lot of our like um, metabolic compromise runs with like burpees or jump squats or plyos, but a lot less of the bar work in between. And sure, is that going to get your heart rate as high as a burpee? No. But is it going to simulate obviously race, you know, situations more? Probably yes. So I'm going to incorporate a little more bar work and probably be programming it too, just based on that criteria alone. And then hearing what I heard the last couple of weeks, I think, I think that's a good, that was a good reminder for us. For sure. And it shows yeah. you just always have to be learning, always have to be adapting. Totally does. Um, that's it. I wanted to add that one thing. Okay. Well, ladies and gents, our question bank is dry for the most part. We got a one or two right after the last Q and A, but if you have things you want us to chat about, send them in. Yeah. We, uh, what do we got? You got four weeks to do it. Four weeks to do it. Load up the questions. Maybe we'll put out a poll one of these days, but send in the questions. And and uh, if you have things that like a specific topic you think an entire episode should be made about, send that in too. We love those. All these episodes have been mostly dictated off of um, feedback from you or what we're seeing in the racing and training world. So like, yeah, what, what you say actually matters. Whether you think it's smart or stupid, you never know what's stupid question you have that might actually spawn like an in-depth conversation so keep them coming and uh if you're in vegas this weekend i should be there both days looks like Trailmaster steve hammond is having himself a ball on the course already setting things up looks like looks like what we expect it sandy flat and fast at times they're going to use that steep grade uh there's like a 100 foot climb that they like to use a couple of times in there and there's a nice cold river they like to make a splash in that's mountain runoff water a couple times so it should be a good one um, say hello. Wear your running public shirt too. And Bracken, we do have some more running public shirts on the way, don't we? We do. You, you got the order officially done? Yep. I'm excited for that. Good luck out there this weekend. I'm excited to watch you race. Thanks, brother. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. I have one last shout out here. I'm okay. going to be commentating Savage Race, live streaming Savage Race with Josh Chase and Matt B. Davis this weekend. So if you missed the coverage last week, Turned out pretty well. You get to watch a race happen live and hear a couple goons chat about it. Tune on in Saturday. It'll be probably, what, 7 a.m. Central time? Are they going to be seeing your mug, too? This is video, right? Oh, yeah. This is going to be video. You get to you get to see the the plethora of shoes behind me. This this is the Hall of Fame shoe wall. These are my favorite shoes I've ever run in, dating back to high school. It's worth tuning in for so many reasons, but I'd say the main one is to see that beautiful wall behind you, Bracken. Yep. I'm going to be wearing a running public t-shirt and blinded by exotic shoe colors. (laughs) All right. Tune in then guys. See you Saturday.